This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everyone. I'm Dana Blanchard from Haymarket Books, and I am moderating today's conversation, Unforgetting Family Migration, Gangs, Borders, and Revolution, with Roberto Lovato and Mike Davis. This is a book launch event for Roberto's incredible new memoir, Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our speakers and begin our discussion of this amazing book. So first of all, Roberto Lovato, um, who wrote this amazing book, is a journalist and a member of the Writers' Grotto. He's one of the country's leading writers and thinkers on Central American gangs, refugees, violence, and other issues. He's also a co-founder of the hashtag Dignidad Literaria, the national movement formed to combat the invisibility and silencing of Latinx stories and books in the U.S. publishing industry. He's also the recipient of a reporting grant from the Pulitzer Center and a former fellow at UC Berkeley's Latinx Research Center. And his essays and reporting have appeared in numerous national and international publications. Um, Roberto is being joined tonight by Mike Davis. He's the author of City of Courts, Late Victorian Holocaust, Buddha's Wagon, and Planet of Slums, among many books. He is the co-author of Haymarket's No One is Illegal, and he is the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship and the Lannan Literary Award. Both of our speakers are not just authors, they're also political activists and organizers. So this will be a conversation not just about what is written, but how what is written is both influenced by and impacts the world around us. And they have known each other and worked together for quite some time, as evidenced in this amazing photo of them um, out on a protest line somewhere in Ireland, I believe. Um, so now I want to talk a little bit about the book Unforgetting. Um, for those of you who have not yet seen some of the wonderful reviews of Unforgiving, um, the one in the New York Times yesterday, for one, um, it was also listed as one of Newsweek's 25 must-read books for this fall. Let me share a little bit more about the book. So Unforgetting is an urgent, no-holds-barred tale of gang life, guerrilla warfare, intergenerational trauma, and interconnected violence between the United States and El Salvador. The memoir excavates family history and reveals the intimate stories beneath headlines about gang violence and mass Central American migration, one of the most important yet least understood humanitarian crises of our time, and one in which the perspectives of Central Americans in the United States have been silenced and forgotten. So my first question to get us started in this conversation is about the title. So Unforgetting is a title, but it's also a theme that runs throughout the book. And it's based on this Greek concept of aletheia, unforgetting that comes through uncovering the truth. This idea that we must grapple with things that are difficult, with personal and political histories that might be ugly and violent, but only through facing these truths can we really understand ourselves and our work as activists and change makers. 
So why is this unforgetting of Salvadoran stories, this unpacking of decades of liberation struggles, um, this bringing to light of the role that U.S. imperialism has played and continues to play in perpetuating violence across Latin America? Why is this so important that we do this unforgetting now in this particular political moment? In other words, why this book? Why now? Uh, well, first of all, I need to thank uh, Haymarket, Upended, uh, Anthony Arnov, and you, Dana, and especially Mike Davis for joining me on this very emotional moment for me in my life where I've waited a while to write a book about my life because we were kind of busy doing things, as you will read, I hope, in the book. Uh, I need, before anything, to take a moment to unforget who Mike Davis is to me. Uh, did they show the picture on the screen? Um, Dana? Did they? I think so. Okay, well, <laughs> if I have hair in there, that's a, we need to forget that. But that aside, I, in, ser in all seriousness, uh, when <laughs> I came from El Salvador uh, to Los Angeles in uh, the early 90s, uh, you know, after the, you know, the war was ending, uh, you know, uh, uh, traumatized and, and trying to kind of understand myself as a person of the United States, because I'm born here. As you can see on my cover of my book, I have Hunt's Donuts. That's how Americano I am. Um, there's this guy who is constantly using the word compañero, welcoming me, opening his door uh, to his home and to meet his family. He opened his table to me to um, break bread. And um, he opened my mind and he encouraged me to, along with uh, Ruben Martinez and um, uh, Hector Tobar and Maricela Norte in LA, they encouraged me to tell my story. They said I had a story to tell and that, that, that I might be able to tell it in a, as beautiful a way as possible. And his example speaks for itself. And so I just want to say for, to Mike Davis, uh, we still have Mike with us, thankfully. Um, you're an example in word and in deed to me, Mike, and I'm so grateful to you for joining me. Um, and I just want to say, like, you know, I know you love Brecht. So I'm going to use Brecht to honor you by saying, que hay hombres que luchan un día y son buenos. Hay hombres que luchan muchos años y son muy buenos. Y hay quienes luchan toda la vida. Esos son los imprescindibles. That's by way of Silvio Rodriguez's translation in that beautiful song, if you haven't heard it, Sueños con Serpientes. It says, there are those who struggle one day and they're good. There are those who struggle many days and they are very good. And there are those who struggle all of their lives. These are the essential ones. So you honor me, Mike. Uh, and joining me with this very important moment in my life. And I'm grateful to you for all the support of also for so long. Okay. I am, um, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by that. Um, I want to talk about your book first uh, from a writerly standpoint. And I know Roberto is shy about admitting to be a wonderful writer. But the thing that overwhelmed me in the book, really, apart from the, the story itself and all the important messages, is just the superb detail 
that he records of people, conversations, of smells. Uh, one character who's very important in the book, uh, who Roberto should talk about at some point, uh, a major gang leader and spokesperson in El Salvador in Santiago, the way that his gold tooth sparkles signaling a, a certain kind of menace, or in the period when Roberto is visiting and working with the forensic pathologists, examining both the bones and remains of people slaughtered way back in the Lamontanza, the big massacre in 1932, people slaughtered in 1981, and people, you know, murdered the day before um, in El Salvador, the smell of the, of, of the body parts, but also the, the tropical fragrance and beauty of El Salvador, a country that's been more vilified than almost any country on earth. Because, of course, the, uh, in, in the period of the U.S. intervention in the Civil War, the most well-known account was John Didion's book, uh, Salvador. And she's repulsed by El Salvador from the minute she uh, touches foot in the airport in South Salvador. Uh, it's her personal uh, heart of darkness. And unfortunately, that's the way that not only right-wing intellectuals have seen uh, El Salvador and the rest of Central America, but far too too many uh, liberals, uh, Salvadorans are victims, or Salvadorans are, are, are criminals. Instead of seeing what Roberto allows us to see in this wonderful book, which is Salvadorans as lovers, as exuberant people, as fighters. And the kind of joy that is managed to survive uh, unspeakable uh, crimes. And a U.S. intervention in El Salvador that started under the Kennedy administration and continues today. Well, I... I want to take on both of your your comment, Mike, and, and, and Dana's question as far as the title of Unforgetting. Uh, it does come from the Greek aletheia, which refers to the journey into the underworld that the dead would have to take, and they would have to cross the Lethe River. And, they, and the Lethe River was the river of forgetting. And so the dead were supposed to forget who they were in life before they went on to Elysium or to Hades. And I saw, you know, because I've inhabited numerous underworlds, whether it's, you know, criminal underworlds that I visited as a journalist or that I had in my family uh, through my dad, whether it was the underworld of the FMLN guerrillas or the underworld of the unknown history that is there operating at deep levels of, below levels of awareness, uh, as it does with many of us, and we don't even know what we're doing when the subconscious takes over or the underworld of death squads that I've interviewed or that pursued me. Uh, I felt like I wanted to tell a full story because as you, as Mike says, you know, there's a lot of art to our story besides the two dominant symbols, which during the war was the poor little refugee. And in the post-war era it was the gangs. And so 
you know, I grew up with family that underwent astonishing poverty, for example, that made John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath look like a wine fest, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, they, they they overcame so much. My, my grandmother literally sewed her way out of a shanty town that was all prostitutes. And she brought her family to the United States, to San Francisco, following kind of like the coffee, right, that was, you know, the reason El Salvador has suffered so much is the capitalist, you know, commodification of coffee and all the suffering that that brought that we can talk about. And so, you know, I grew up with fantastic stories in my life. Let me me ask you, just to pause for a second, tell us more about Mama Tay and your relationship to her, because she's the astonishing heroic figure in your book. My grandmother was a seamstress. She uh, sewed her way, like I said, out of a shanty town that her and my dad were living in in El Salvador in the, during the Great Depression. And she sewed primarily in a what's called a meson, uh, a shanty town of, that was mostly prostitutes around it. So my dad grew up his first job was with a, with prostitutes. He was a guy that uh, attended to. So my grandmother I- I inherited to us uh, uh, the this thing about you just look at people for being human. You don't just accept the label of puta or of pandillero, prostitute or gang. She taught us values that are transcendent values. And she's also taught us by example to be a person who could actually create transnational networks for example, of contraband. It was my grandmother, in fact, Mama Tay, who first started our family bringing contraband. If you talk to like people like Maria Hinojosa, she, she, her family used to uh, do contraband. You know, the MP, the woman who's on NPR. She, when she heard my story, she said, "Oh yeah, my my grandmother dealt in fayuca," and so my grandmother is was an extraordinary figure and very funny and 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 uh, very powerful. And so I grew up with people like this. But I don't see that image anywhere as a journalist, even now. I've done research with volunteers, for example, to look at um, stories reporting on the child separation story, which was one of the dominant stories of 2018, when Trump was formalizing the policy. And I looked at it from the perspective of how many of these sources in this story are Central American scholars, like my friend Lacey Abrego or Suyapa Portillo from Honduras. Or how many are lawyers? How many are leaders of community organizations like Larissa Cuadra or Marta Revolo that should be household names, but they're not? How many are uh, community activists? How many are 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 um, are journalists? I mean, th- there were a total of zero in most of the stories in the major media. The dominant image was the, you know, the, the image of pain and the soundbite of suffering. That was and so you look at literature and you have American dirt. You mentioned Dignidad Literaria and my role in helping found that. Part of my motivation because what passes for literature is either the colonial approach to terror is the given of the place, the heart of darkness. Mark talked about with with uh, Joan Didion or um, the hideous reportage that excludes our own people in our own story. I mean, I I grew up as an adult in a country, I mean, relating to a country where the CIA said one of the most formidable people's movements of the 20th century in Latin America was the Frente Faraundo Martí para la Liberación Nacional, the FMLN guerrillas. One of every three people was organized against the state. 
during the war, according to the Central America, Universidad Centroamericana, poets would form revolutionary organizations. The distinction between poetry and politics that you see in a Mike Davis, for example, that was the norm in El Salvador. Or And so I wrote the book because uh, as an act of political imagination to share what I had learned about things like revolution at a time when we really need it, like now. So that's... One of the things that most impressed me, and I have to admit I'm a little jealous of this, yeah. was the way you wove into all this a central mystery, the mystery of your father. And so you become the forensic pathologist, the archaeologist, trying to understand your conflicted relationship with your father, which leads you back to unspeakable events in your country, in El Salvador's history. And it's just a, a tremendous story. And it makes the, the book so dramatic because you keep wondering, are we going to find out who El General, El General is? And uh, what is the mystery that your father's biography conceals? Speak a little bit about that. Well, I'm not going to give away the plot, Mike, because otherwise I ain't going to sell any books, dude, all right? So, um, but let me just say that I, I chose the braided narrative structure because my friend Brad Kessler, a fellow writer and teacher of mine, introduced me to this concept. And I, I saw it. I'm like, wow, that's perfect for what I want to do because I want to tell my story in a way that brings the reader with me on the journey because I was a crazy dude as a kid. The things that I did were, you know, I was involved in not a gang, but we had a little group of guys that we called ourselves Los Originales, and we would rob and we would steal cars. We would deal pot, you know, do things that were part of the, you know, community that I grew up in. Uh, and then I, why the hell did I join, decide to join the FMLN, right? I never, I never knew why I did these things. And uh, only later did I start kind of the introspection that in the post-war era to excavate and do the archaeology of family and of countries, right? The archaeology of nations is related to the archaeology of the personal. And, you know, I, I start finding out all these secrets because my dad in the house, we had all kinds of pictures of my family's, my mom's side of the family, but there were none of my father's family. And so, like, I wanted the reader to experience the aha moment that Mike is trying to get me to give up, but I'm not. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, I want the reader to experience that because that's how it was to me as far as living this life, being doing this crazy stuff. And then how the hell did I do that? And I didn't find out why I did this stuff until around 2000. And then it all comes together. And my dad's secret actually has helped, to, which has to do with La Matanza of 1932, the one of the most violent episodes in the Western Hemisphere uh, in terms of the numbers of people killed per day, per week. In, in modern history, according to some these folks I interviewed at Oxford who were students of violence. So my dad had a lot to say about it. So did other members of my family. And I didn't even know about it until I started investigating. And so the reader, I want the reader to experience the fragmented nature of memory and of trauma and the way that we stitch together those fragments by when we tell our stories. And, and if we do it as beautifully as possible, then we're deploying what I call the strategic value of the sublime and the beautiful in our favor, which is kind of like what we're going to need right now to struggle before the things that we're facing on the planet right now. I think uh, 
so many of us, our adult lives have ultimately been shaped by a quest to understand such unspoken experiences, the memories that aren't revealed to us. Some of us, uh, it's too late. Our parents die before we can know that. For instance, I have a good friend, a uh, Japanese-Hawaiian guy. His father was part of the famous Nisi regiment that was decimated in the Hurgan Forest trying to save a bunch of Texans. But his father never talked about his war experiences. He would go out on the dock with a bunch of other veterans, and they would talk and drink. But they wouldn't tell their, tell their children, because in their case, uh, they were kind of embalmed in this mythology of the Nisi heroes who, uh, uh, you know, won, won the admiration of America despite uh, the war in the Pacific. But in fact, they hated many of their white officers. They hated these guys that they sacrificed half their uh, regiment kind of save. And my friend Steve spent years just trying to have his father's not dead. And he, he's having trying to have a conversation with his father and trying to understand why his father wouldn't tell him these things that explain uh that explains so much. But in your book, which is about unforgetting, the other side of that, of course, is how people have suppressed these memories or learned to live in two realities, um, seemingly without contradiction. And an astonishing figure in your book is, I forget his name, Yusidro? The case you arrived, yeah. Talk a little, little bit about him and how you found out about his past. Yeah, um, one of the parts of my journey in the book is to go and try to understand, like you know, in the present, the part that's the, that has three strands. There's a present level, uh, which is 2015, and there's my adolescence in the 70s to the 2000s. Or I'm a little older than that, not 2000, but. Uh, and then my father's childhood. So I, I, I tie all three together throughout the book. And so in the present moment, my, my the, the, the driving narrative, the arc in it is my search to understand why, what turns a kid into a, an innocent child into a killer I mean, or, or to and into a victim in a country where more and more when I was there in 2015 and El Salvador was the most violent country on earth in August of that year, a lot of the victims were children. And a lot of perpetrators were kids. And so I'm trying to understand this. And it's as much about an external journey and as internal, which is why I chose memoir. So I, I, I get a meeting. I'm trying to get a meeting with this uh, top level gang member. He's basically kind of like a gang diplomat for MS-13 and 18th Street, the two dominant gangs in El Salvador. And he's part of this political commission that they established in order to do things like negotiate a truce with the government. And, you know, I finally get a meeting with him and I'm like, you know, here talking to him and he's got like this book on the, on the table. Uh, he's got Marlboro's, Salvadorans love to smoke Marlboro's for all eternity, it seems. And, um, and he's got his cell phones. And so, he, and he's got the Hunger Games on there too, the book. And, and I didn't wake up to later that the guy actually wanted to talk about books and literature. He was a brilliant guy. I mean, he was, you know, at the top of the killing chain 
but he was super brilliant. And it just kind of blew me away. He started identifying with Monsignor Oscar Arnulfo Romero, the slain archbishop of El Salvador, who is now a saint uh, in the Catholic Church, who is a man of peace. And he identified with Romero as far as being persecuted. And I, I, yeah, I didn't entirely buy that from him, but the fact that he's thinking and looking at Romero and the fact that he was like my father, grew up in a shanty town with no lights, no water, running water, and that he read voraciously. He read Garcia Marquez, he told me. He read uh, Galliano. He read uh, Homer. I mean, he was just like, just blew me away. And uh, I found, I, I, you know, I went to interview him as a journalist. I came out interviewing somebody who was a, a fellow reader. And I had to, despite my discomfort, I had to accept this person as a human being. And at the end of the day, I realized like, you know, um, I had to go in and humanize the gangs because Salvadoran humanity is hidden behind uh, the inhumanity that's with which the, the U.S. government, whether it was Barack Obama and the heavy funding of counterinsurgency police, counterinsurgency policing in El Salvador, or Donald Trump, who is accelerating the nefarious patterns established uh, under Obama in many ways since 2008. And he began, there was stuff previous under Bush, but Obama really accelerated the policing models in El Salvador to do the awful things that they've done. Your book is strangulated between three places that are essential to your experience. The Mission District, where you grew up, San Salvador, and uh, rural El Salvador, to which... And L.A. Again, again. And L.A., and so Salvadorans fled the violence that killed over 100,000 uh, uh, people in the 1980s to come to the city only to encounter other forms of violence, both state violence in terms of the LAPD, particularly the Ramparts uh, Division of the LAPD, which patrolled uh, the MacArthur Park Pico Union areas, but also gang violence. And so if you, I'm sure if you drew a map of uh, San Salvador, uh, I'm maybe not today, but 10 years ago, when people were uh, gang kids, or 20 years ago, when gang kids were being uh, uh, deported back to El Salvador, although some of them had almost no memory of the country, you drew a gang map. It looks uncannily. Uh, like that of Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, somebody once showed me, um, who's doing research on this, uh, a map of uh, uh, Belize, and it had all the sets from South Central there. I'm sure it's probably the same case in uh, Guatemala. Talk a little bit about how the role of the LAPD and daily violence in Los Angeles created this Mara uh, identity. And then about the role of the uh, the police and uh, particularly one individual who's still unfortunately uh, interfering in our lives today, Attorney General William Barr, in uh, turning the, the war on gangs into uh, a terrorist campaign against 
Central American and uh, uh, Mexican kids. But let's start first all with the um, the history of Mara, its emergence uh, in the 1980s. Yeah, you got to love Mike Davis's way, man. See, he, he gets it. The way that when we're focusing on the gangs, we don't even talk about the policing of the gangs that frames them like the, the look at the border, how sophisticated they are with media now. Department of Homeland Security, they're extremely sophisticated as far as their use of the media. And so the, the, that their use of the media includes criminalizing entire groups of people. I have a quote in my book from LA, in the LA Times where an INS officer, Immigration Naturalization Service, says, man, this isn't just about profiling gangs. This is about profiling an entire people. You know, it's not an exact quote, but so this was part of the way that the LAPD, local politicians, and eventually people in the Pentagon and even in the White House started framing the gangs and the gang experience in their way to justify kind of this new internal enemy that I think people in national security circles saw coming long ago. So, for example, uh, I remember there were trainers in El Salvador from the Pentagon. And there were also people in El Salvador, the worst killers uh, who were the responsible for, say, El Mosote, for example, where almost a thousand people were killed. Um, half of them were uh, children under 12, and half of the ones that were under 12 were under six. The people, the 10 of the 12 officers that were in charge of that operation were trained at a place called the School of the Americas that may be familiar. And it's familiar again because the Border Patrol now goes to train at the School of the Americas. You can read books by people like Stuart Schrader or Todd Miller to get a real better sense of that. But you won't see Stuart Schrader or Todd Miller on MSNBC, just like you don't see Mike Davis or me on MSNBC. But anyway, I don't want to go there on the media side. But so you have these trainers in El Salvador uh, training people for mass murder. They were responsible for 85% of the killing, according to the United they, Nations. They even Group. issued handbooks. Is that correct? There were manuals that were found that were exposed later on. It took decades for us to unforget these manuals that are finally available on the Internet if you want to see them. And so after the war ended, I found out that some of these trainers who trained the Salvadoran military came back to the U.S. And where did they end up? Who did they end up training in the U.S.? LAPD and other U.S. police departments whose uniforms went from like the Adam-12 uniform, that's those thin uniforms, to RoboCop. The militarization of U.S. police has actually a Salvadoran component to it because you, I, there's a quote in my book from a, a cop who says, hey, you know, we got this high-level training in counterinsurgency from, from these guys who came from the jungles of of, uh, of Central America and South America. So, so then William Barr in 92 seizes on the LA riots to redeploy FBI resources in a historic way to focus away from external threats to the internal threat of gangs, one of which was MS-13. And, and he then, then together with the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which was also under William Barr, they then together exported, deported the gang structures of MS of U.S. gang style to El Salvador. And so you go to my grandmother's hometown and I'm there, Cobblestone Street, 500-year-old church up the block. Suddenly there's Hoover Street. I'm like, whoa. So then, so then 
barring others later, the Justice Department then deployed in the post-war era, they deployed um, uh, U.S. police trainers to train the new police force of the post-war El Salvador, thereby worsening the policing problem in El Salvador to continue what you see under Nayib Bukele right now, which is the military and the police as a repressive force under cover of social media. The um, pivotal event in your book, of course, uh, are the 1992 uh, riots, uh, which is still fundamentally misunderstood in so many ways. In 1965, after the uprising in Watts, there was a riot commission convened. They issued a long report, which basically exculpated uh, the LAPD, but then was immediately challenged by journalists and social scientists, blew it out of the water. But in the course of this, produced uh, a portrait of what really, uh, really happened. After 92, nobody wanted a report. Nobody wanted to know what happened. And I think few people understand that, uh, as the ACLU found out in an investigation, that majority of people arrested were not arrested in South Central, south of the uh, uh, Santa Monica Freeway. Majority of people were not arrested, uh, who were arrested, uh, one African-American. And along with the uprising against the LEPD over Natasha Harlins and, and Rodney King, there was a, essentially a bread riot in Los Angeles uh, because the recession that occurred in the last two years of the Bush administration cut right into the heart of L.A., something like almost a fifth of the unemployment in the country. And this was biggest recession since 1938. The, of course, it pales uh, magnitude uh, compared to what we see today. But heavily concentrated in L.A., and it was just devastating in the tenement communities, neighborhoods uh, west of downtown and Pico Union and in parts of South Central, which were heavily Latinized by, by that time. People were, you know, people were desperate and they went out. Uh, what did they loot? Groceries. Pampers were very much on the top of, of the list. Uh, teenage kids preferred tennis shoes, DVDs, which are essential to single uh, mother families or working uh, 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 families. And thousands of people uh, were arrested without the media ever contextualizing this in terms of what was happening, the socioeconomic conditions in the communities. And as I pointed out, and something I wrote later, I thought the most important photograph of the 92 riots was one taken the previous Christmas, which showed, appeared in the LA Times, it showed 12,000 uh, mothers and children, uh, mainly Mexican and Central American, waiting out in the cold outside of a downtown mission to get a free chicken and a toy. LA hadn't seen images of deprivation uh, on that scale, uh, since the uh, uh, the Great Depression, the Chicano politicians in the city, of course, wanted to shift all the blame on Salvadorans, <laughs> uh, despite the fact 
that uh, outside of Pico Union and the other one of the other major concentrations of uh, Salvadorans was in the West Lake MacArthur Park area. But I went through the census data. It was half half Mexican, half uh, 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 Salvadorian. Everybody wanted to shift the blame. But the one, and in the long run, one of the most significant parts of it that I'd like to hear from you about was the federalized reign of terror that followed the rebellion uh, itself, the totally unconstitutional uh, reign of terror in the neighborhoods, particularly in the Salvadorian stronghold, the Pico Union. You were there. Tell us a little bit about what happened and what some of the long-range consequences of that were. Well, before I go into the gravitas of that, I need to say that's actually around the time when I first met Mike Davis. <laughs> and I actually, I have to confess before the world right now, Mike Davis was in my book. I had a scene where I just met this guy and he's taking me on a tour of Pico. He says, hey, see that corner right there? It's the most dangerous corner in the United States. I don't know if you remember that, Mike, but it was Alvarado and like uh, 7th. And... Uh, you know, because I was you mean, just you mean kind of the southeast corner of MacArthur Park. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so that's when I first met Mike and I was just coming from El Salvador. And like suddenly people are saying it's like a war. And I was like, actually, no, war is like war. Nothing else. Right. Those 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 friends. But the people that did use the imaginary of the war were people in the federal government. People like William Barr, who starts the war on gangs we're under the excuse of the LA riots, but also the military, Mike, you remember, they deployed, there's quotes you can see about already that militaristic Im imaginary, seeing an opportunity to start doing what Pentagon strategists had already started talking about at the time, which was that they were gonna find a way to militarize the cities. They were talking about that back in in the 90s with the riots. I mean, Mike could probably speak volumes to that, but I remember seeing some of those off the shelf reports that they, that they had been revealed and so Salvadorans were right at the center of this as one of the most heavily populated groups, along with Mexicans. But I, I need to make the distinction. There were the Mexican ele Chicano elected officials who were trying to scapegoat Central Americans with the white folks and the federales. But there were also the Chicano activists with whom months later we would organize the historic marches against Proposition 187, which is looming, right? Because Pete Wilson helped to kind of like, you know, what's the name of that book, uh, Learn Like a State? You know, states learn, right? So- Saying like a state, yeah. Yeah, so the state was learning uh, how to use immigration for its raison d'etat, right? Its reasons of state. They were learning to take the issue of immigration to militarize communities. That was clear to me. There's actually a quote in a Nation article where you kind of put me in that position to quote that back then. And so uh, we were there. We saw, you know, we I was at Cares in the Central American Refugee Center at the time. We later changed the name to Central American Resource Center. And Cares had, you know, all kinds of clients where who were like a pregnant a woman who was pregnant who miscarried because they had her, you know, in in one of these prisons uh, that you know jails that 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 they had. We you know we were. We documented this. It's in the public record, but not much changed because Proposition 187 and the anti-immigrant wave that we're still living with now began in Southern California, which you remember, Mike, was home to one of every three migrants in the United States. 
astonishing numbers. And so there was a great learning in LA at that time. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm trying to plug my book, but let me put a plug for Mike's book. I mean, like. L.A. really was the city, is the city of the future in many ways, as City of Quartz is titled. And I I woke up to that reading, Mike, and just being in this fabulous place. And so, you anyway, know, let me leave it there. You know, Roberto, the, the thing I'll never forget, I was uh, when we went together uh, on this project you were working on, that I think it was on Alvarado, wasn't it? That they it converted a motel, kind of, you know, yeah. cheap run-down motel into a prison for undocumented women and children. And they were, you know, signaling to people out in the streets uh, about con- about conditions right there in the middle of the city. You wouldn't see such a, uh, a makeshift prison on, on the west side or so on, but uh, the MacArthur Park area, the Salvadoran community. I must admit, I was shocked to my roots by by that, tell us a little bit about that that prison and some of the work that Caressen was doing. Uh, well, yeah, Caressen was protesting that we were dealing with clients and service because you know we were Salvadoran, so we were like, you know, you're coming from a country where one of every three people was organized as state, many of whom were organized in what we called doble cara, right? By day, I'm working in a community organization. By night, I'm going to go subvert the fucking system. You said I could swear, Dana. So, um, and so. Um, you know, we were doing this kind of unique thing under the nonprofit structure uh, that at some point I hope gets documented along with the history of solidarity with groups like CISPES that were creations of the Salvadoran Revolution. Our community organizations were also creations of the Salvadoran Revolution. So there's a there's a revolutionary culture that moved us to fight back against that. And uh, you remember Mike Hernandez. You know, council member Mike Hernandez, he had a he was inspired by us to the point where he got the poetic just the idea of poetic justice after the riots, after the uprising, whatever you want to and taking um, that building and donating it to Caresen to become our offices after it was closed down. Unfortunately, it was structurally not good for our family based service model because it was single room occupancy, SRO, which is a term I actually learned in L.A., could you tell us a little bit about community organizing today in the Salvadoran diaspora in California, San Francisco, and L.A.? There's a lot going on in, in California right now. You have uh, you had a group, the USEO, the United Students, uh, Salvadoran Students. It was a, They had a lot of members at, at, at just a few years ago, and then they kind of went, went – uh, you know, got diverted from stuff, but you still have a lot of groups, UNICA, UCLA, and others who are organizing um, at, at the university level. You have right now groups like School School of the Americas Watch or CSPIS, for example, now having these strong, young, mostly Central American women lead, leading the charge, thereby inverting the traditional North-South model, you know, North, rich, white, North, Give solidarity to poor white, poor brown or black or you know non-white South. Now inverting that model of solidarity, which is kind of what we need to be doing right now, right? We need to kind of change the industrial age models of organizing. And I think 
a lot. I think a lot of Salvadorans in in in, in university, in, in in groups like those I mentioned, in the community groups, right? The Carecens are still around. Uh, you have Alianza Americas, which is a kind of a visionary organization that just doesn't organize Salvadorans, but organizes across most migrant groups in the U.S. and in, in the Americas. It's founded by a Salvadoran guy named Oscar Chacon, who came out of the Salvadoran revolutionary movement like 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 a lot of us. But he took his knowledge, his Jedi knowledge of, of the Salvadoran experience, and has applied it to organize across not just diasporas in the entire country, but connecting them to the Americas. Because I know you're a big fan of that, Mike. It's, the, the struggle has to be hemispheric and global. We, Absolutely. That's I wrote the book. Going between places yeah. was to show our experience, our revolutionary experience, organizing across borders. Absolutely. I wanted to uh, put a topic in here that is, is rarely discussed, but it's become urgent today. About uh, 15 years ago, I'd, I'd written a book about famine and El Nino droughts in the 19th century. And I became friends with uh, some of the climate scientists at Lamont Doherty, Columbia's university's Earth Laboratory up the Epson. One of them is a wonderful British guy named Richard Seeger. I remember Richard Seeger telling me, uh, it was perhaps during his visit to Scripps a little bit later, but anyway, telling me, we were talking about climate change and drought. And he said, the place nobody's looking at is the Caribbean and Central America. Okay, some of the most dramatic changes and with the most devastating impacts in agriculture are going to occur there in Central America. And now we see that so many of the refugees flee northward, particularly amongst Hondurans. It's been a combination They've been expelled by a combination of violence, but also by an incredible drought and agricultural uh, crisis, failing crops, uh, failing, you know, failing uh, 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 coffee harvests. So they're not only refugees from uh, state terror, they're also refugees uh, from climate change. And this is just a hint of what... Uh, you know, we'll see more of uh, every year from now on. I mean, how is El Salvador dealing with uh, these big structural and uh, uh, environmental issues? How do you see the future of the country? Uh, the future of the country is tied to the United States. <laughs> That's part of one of the points of my book. It's like, we're not going to change El Salvador without changing the United States. That became clear to me after the war. And so that's why I decided to come. They had enough folks in the in the movement down there. Uh, they didn't need me, a U.S.-born kid from the mission here. I decided to come and fight here in the U.S., and I'm still doing it in word and in deed, I hope, as are you, Mike. And so um, as a journalist, I've gone to, like, Turkey and dealt with, you know, interviewed all these Syrian refugees, you know, where they're where they, near the border. I've been in Juarez where... You know, there's a there's wasn't during the intense violence, and I was in El Salvador, and inevitably I would find scientists and reports that talked about the way climate change was flooding, heating the tensions that were already there from capitalism, right? The 
the, 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 the scarcity of resources or the perception of scarcity were being worsened by climate change. And so there's a connection between the violence in El Salvador and climate change, just like there is in Juarez and Syria. And so um, I'm, you know, I started like, you know, one of the things I wanted to say here is like, and I put, you know, my, the title, the subtitle of my book, Family, uh, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution. Okay, now, three of the four terms have what they call search engine optimization value. <laughs> so if you go on the computer, there's a there's a search engine optimization. It'll, it'll click and it'll do good to sell books. Buy the book, please. Just don't go to Amazon. But the word revolution doesn't have as much search engine optimization value yet. And so... I put I insisted that that title be part of the title because it's so important to me that I think like I don't have the answer I don't think just solely taking state power is the answer anymore I don't I don't have that answer but I do know that any revolutionary from here on in is going to have to think about how to like you know we're in disequilibrium with with the planet and the planet is, 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 is making our life-sustaining systems in radical disequilibrium. So any revolutionary is going to have to think about and act upon equilibrium. How do we establish more equal relations as human beings, racially, class-wise, abolishing police, these kinds of things? And that's kind of the great hope for me. And I, I mean, just to be clear, my book's not a downer. I hope it's not a downer. I didn't write it with being a downer. I, I wrote it as, a, as, a, as an example of the struggle of the Salvadoran people to deal with genocidal violence, to deal with one of the longest standing military dictatorships, fighting them throughout, to deal with one, a, a very savage civil war instituted by the United States, and to deal with gang wars also instituted by the United States, and to still smile and laugh like my grandmother, like my father, like I do, you know. There's, there's, there's another dimension, uh, of course, apart from U.S. intervention and support for the very rich haciendados and uh, business people in, in Central America. And that's the way that it uh, keeps being turned into a caste war, which the FLN tried to... Uh, uh, to overcome between uh, urban Ladinos and indigenous people in Guatemala and uh, southern Mexico and in El Salvador. And um, you talk uh, some about your own indigenous uh, ancestry in, in, in the book. Could you ex explain this a bit? Yeah, my father... Uh is he grew up, and according to people like uh, Lacey Abrego, many people, scholars like Lacey Abrego at UCLA, many people, perhaps most people poor in El Salvador in the during the Great Depression um, were already defined as ilegitimos, illegitimate. It was a label, like a brand on, on the poor. And, you know, so you became illegitimate because like my in my father's case my father was born to a rich coffee baron but he didn't recognize him and you I have a picture on my twitter feed you can see the the example of my father's birth certificate that I have the picture of it and so um my his, his the woman who was my grandmother uh his, the mother of the coffee baron was actually indigenous 
right? And so, um, uh, as was another one of my grandmother, great grandmothers, uh, on both sides, on my mom's side as well. I don't go into that, but both my grandma, great grandmothers, were indigenous women. But that identity went underground, especially after 1932. Like if you go, like you have scholars like Eric Ching, who would go and look at the uh, birth records of uh, children before La Matanza of 1932, when they slaughtered tens of thousands of indigenous people. Most of the uh, children born in my dad's hometown at that time were Indios, quotes, because that's a racist term, still used. If you look at the birth records after La Matanza, many of them were this thing called mestizo and campesino, campesino, right? The campesino, the peasant term, is really a, 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 a state-sanctioned state identity, alternative to indigenous identity. And so I grew up really not having a connection to the indigenous identity because it was kind of a prohibited thing except to look at a statue in San Salvador or to, you know, I got a, I got a, I got a briefcase as a kid from my parents who wanted, me to, wanted to instill pride in me about things Salvadoran, and it had a picture of a guy named Atlacat. Like every Latin American country has this indigenous myth where somebody was heroic and fighting off the colonizing Spaniards. Well, later on, when I was at Cal State Northridge teaching in the country's first Central American Studies program, trying to find material to teach, we were, I discuss, I find out that Atlacat was a myth created by some French priest. So that there, are, and there are banks there are suitcases, like the one I, the little briefcases I had is when I was Mr. Peabody, and there were murderous battalions, like the Atlacat Battalion that perpetrated El Mosote Massacre, uh, in, 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 um, that killed almost a thousand people, mostly children. That was named for a myth, of, of, of an indigenous man that didn't even exist. So this is kind of the layering of the way that indigenous identity of El Salvador has been erased. Thankfully, there's still a struggle in El Salvador. And I, I have some friends of mine, like Juliana Ama, who are teaching Nahuatl and are trying to preserve the language and the culture. Just, just within like a block or two of one of the many unexcavated um, mass graves of not just the gang violence or the war of the 80s, but of 1932 in the and that's kind of the point of my book is in the thing with the forensics is, you know, the the the, the commingled, the commingled grave sites of El Salvador are massive, not just in terms of the gangs and the war, but of 1932 because nobody has gone and dug them up. I talked to the people that would do that, and they said that there's no government, including the FMLN government, that wants to go and look at that. And so most people in El Salvador don't even know about La Matanza, according to a study I found in 2007. I don't think that's changed too much. And so you have basically a country that has this genocidal past that isn't even acknowledged. And that's kind of the things that we need to unforget. I think now we have uh, audience questions. Yeah, I was, I'm going to jump in and share a few questions from the audience before we close out today. Um, so this first question is about how much involvement do the wealthy have in keeping gangs going in El Salvador? And I'm going to build on that a little bit and say, I mean, you brought up the term revolution. <laughs> I'm going to throw another word in there, capitalism. Um, there was a mention about the coffee industry. Um, I think just maybe elaborating on the role of wealthy 
both in El Salvador and in the U.S. and their interests, how are their interests represented in kind of keeping um, the gangs going, keeping the war on gangs going, um, and using that as a lever of power in, in both countries? Good question. One of the things I do is interview death squad operatives in my book. I got to know some. Some I didn't even know were death squad operatives until later. Because, so you know, I mean, so um, the death squad operatives, remember that that, that model of death squad comes from like uh, it was tra- they were trained. The U.S. Pentagon was trained by the French that, you know, did did the death squad model as we know it in in Algeria. Prior to that, you had like the Einsatzgruppen and the Nazis, which were admired by El Salvador's founding death squad officer, Roberto de Abuizan. And so um, the death squads have never left El Salvador since the war and before, since the 70s and 60s. The model of kind of state-sanctioned death squads, paramilitaries, is remains. And they were financed not just in El Salvador, but out of Miami. And there are still people, I haven't had a chance to investigate it, but I got sources telling me that there are groups in the U.S. who are funding the death squads that operate in the police and military today. And so, and you, I even heard about like a tour that they would give you, like the, you remember Snufflix, where they would show people being killed? They would give you like this kind of like fantasy island trip to go to El Salvador to see people, a gang member get killed as kind of a tourist thing. You know, the, the, the gaze of the murder is so normalized in our society through these digital mediums, right? You have video games where the, the gaze of the murder is the gaze of the good guy. So, uh, yeah, this, this gang, the gang, the, the Bukele government is turned a blind eye, sadly, like my ex-compañeros in the FMLN did, to the death squads, as Arena did, as the Christian Democrats, as... All these different folks that have been supported by the U.S. have. They also, the death squads came to L.A., didn't they? Yeah, uh, there's a little bit about that. We were uh, pursued by death squads when I was meeting Mike Davis in MacArthur Park. We were, you know, the transnationalization of of repression, right? We were, like Caresin, we did community service, but we also had recruited lawyers like from Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, and we would send them under like the leadership of Madeline Janis to to El Salvador to document human rights cases that against, of some of the worst perpetrators. And so the death squads didn't like that we were doing that. And they, you know, I mean, the, the, the congressional record is rife with surveillance of group like the Committee in Solidarity of the People of El Salvador. They had death squad operatives posing as members of CSPES, posing as, you know, people that wanted to get service or wanted to be organizing with the Salvadorans. Again, but that's the beauty of having a real revolutionary, very disciplined experience. They were unable to get and break through our systems of 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 of, of security, which I think our social movements need to learn right now, because we are so open to, I mean, state repression because of this digital stuff. And so, uh, yeah, the death squads operated in L.A. They raped women. They kidnapped. Yanira uh, Medina, Merino, um, and others, and they tortured them, and they shot at us. So this is like, you know, this is part of the unforgetting that I, I want to bring out because it's dark and it's ugly, but it's also, man, we survived all of that, and we're still fighting. We're still in it. Salvadorans are still in it. 
so on that note, um, that's a good transition to the next question um, from the audience, which is what can children of the Salvadoran diaspora do to show solidarity and support with the people of El Salvador, especially given Bukele's presidency and the uprising against the police in the U.S.? Boy, if I if I had the answer to that one, I'd be Mike Davis in Salvadoran, you know, but um, I think I think that um, what you can do is affiliate with groups that are already doing some of the work in El Salvador and in, in, in the U.S., like CISPIS or like School of the Americas Watch or church groups that are still kind of doing it. I mean, it's kind of amazing the number of people in solidarity with El Salvador who are still out there. It was a transformative moment, which is what movements do, right? Movements transform. The political imaginary in movements compels us to alter our lives. And that's kind of really the the thing. That's why for me, it's, and, and, and Mike, I'd love to hear you. I mean, like, you actually are a historian. People don't realize that this really brilliant dude is, I think you're primarily identified as a historian, even though you you pretty much know everything, um, you know, um, you know, uh, but, you know, I mean, history, we have to kind of really get history right for the sustainable struggle we're going to need in the face of COVID, fascism, economic decline, and then climate change, right? We're going to need a millenarian sensibility. Not, that's something I didn't want to leave without hearing what Mike had to say about it, because that's one of the point of that revolution thing in my book. Well, I think a starting point is that the uh, American left, the new generations of the American left, this generation that's conducting such magnificent protests uh, in the streets, people who supported, young people who supported Bernie Sanders, uh, this was fantastic and, for me, totally unexpected. But... The current American left has one major deficit, which is history and international solidarity. Uh, this has been a very weak component of the current left and the Sanders campaign. So the American left also needs to unforget and recover its traditions of solidarity and the immense importance and centrality that solidarity with Latin America uh, played in the 1970s and 1980s in a kind of reconstitution of the left and the whole generation of, of, of CISPAs. We need to relearn all of this because it's not just history. It's, it's the fundamental point of your book. is It's also our lives today, and particularly because the Trump administration has picked up Salvadorans uh, to be their, their symbol of everything evil and sinister in immigrant uh, uh, communities. You know, this is why it's so essential that people read your book and begin to understand uh, the history that we're still trapped in and that's still being perpetuated by this country. It's been a great honor to, to be on this interview with you. Thank you so much, Roberto. Uh, no need to thank me, Mike. I owe you way more. So, so thank you. What else? I, what, I got one more question from the audience, and then I have a closing question um, for you both. So the final audience question is, um, who are current individuals and organizations that give hope to people in El Salvador in a time of multiple crises? I know you've mentioned um, 
some of these, but I think maybe for folks who are looking to learn more about how to support um, folks in El Salvador, um, do you have specific organizations or groups? Or I would also add maybe publications or people to follow or to read besides you and your book, of course. But um, I'm happy to put some of that stuff on my website. I think one of my points in my book is that Salvadorans are here in the U.S. Like when I went to the publishing industry, I said, hey, look, whatever you do, don't tropicalize me. Because that's one of the only avenues for Latino writers to come in is like take a picture with a rubber tree in the back or some tropical colors or some other shit like that. And then, you know, you kind of like so. So there's a there's there's plenty of groups in El Salvador to support. You can you know, I start off talking with groups here like CISPIS that are connecting things on both sides of the border. But connect with Salvadorans here. Connect with Salvadoran communities here in the U.S. who are integral to the life of El Salvador in terms of money, politics, and the transnational flows. Um, so, yeah. Um, there's also a request in the chat, I think, to read. I don't know if you have anything you want to read from your book, maybe before we get our, to our last question. Um, if you want to share a particular passage or... Oh, boy, you put me on the spot here. Let me... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, uh, let's see. Someone also asked what the amazing house plant is in the back of your room. What's that? Somebody asked what your amazing plant is in your house. I attempt to be tropical, and no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, let me read this passage here. And, you know, you mentioned Cafe La Boheme, where Dana... Truth, I'm going to expose Dana now. She's a Californian through and through like me. Uh, don't know what drugs you've tried, if you've tried any, but we can talk later. Um, Mike, Mike's averse to drugs. I, I know this from, from a long time. We won't bring Mike into that. But <laughs> um, I'm sitting in, at my favorite table at Labo M on 24th near Mission with my laptop in front of me, attempting to stitch together the disparate pieces of my origins as I write this book. The varnished oak tabletop sits on the base of an antique sewing machine. It's 12 by 10 iron treadle and the iron gears it powers still in place. Even though there's no longer a sewing machine above, the pedal moves the metal beast lying below most customers' awareness. Its black latticed elegance and noisy rotation remind me of bouncing on on the lap of Mamate, the Salvadoran seamstress whose Maquina de Coser fueled her family's 3,000-mile journey. Pushing the pedal slowly, I start typing. The pin attached to the pedal of the sewing machinery below pushes and pulls the treadle wheel. To the annoyance of the techie sitting next to me, it squeaks every few revolutions, but still the wheel turns. Up and down, up and down, up and down, the one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four motion of my foot working the treadle hypnotizes me. Next to the wheel, in the center of the space below the table, sits the machine's wrought iron logo, slightly rusty silver and faded black laurels garnishing the Art Deco letters spelling the Singer Manufacturing Company. Coming here is a ritual of mine, something about coming to the neighborhood of my birth to ride atop an old Singer sewing machine in a cafe named for the romantic opera La Boheme makes it easier to recover the fragments of my childhood and adolescent memories, especially the ones that are often more painful to conjure. I look out the window and up the street. A horseman 
at Horse Man, my old junior high. And I remember the shame, confusion, and molten anger I felt as a kid. I told you, he's a magnificent writer. Yeah, that is beautiful. So one final question for both of you to kind of close us out, um, to end on a on a, a hopeful note, because I was talking to Roberto, the book is hopeful. So it has these violent histories, but it's also a book about liberation and hope and the revolutionary struggle then and now and the kind of thread that runs through. So another part of the book that I think is really important is this idea of radical imagination. And I think that's really important right now. And I hope you agree with me, but what do you both radically imagine for our future? I'll let Mike speak first to that one. I'm just going to take notes. Well, I'm notorious because uh, I, I think I'm not a great believer in hope. Okay. It's, it, it's too much like a, uh, uh, it's like in a, a, one great novel I, I, I know of where the protagonist is in prison and his sergeant turns to him and says, well, they're going to kill you, but they're not going to eat you. And he says, oh, that's great. That's my solace. They're not going to eat you. I think that revolutionaries need different kinds of rations to struggle with. Look, right now, capitalism is a threat to human survival, and particularly the survival of the poorest two billion people on Earth in a bunch of different ways. It cannot translate the biomedical revolution into public health. It is unleashed or will inevitably be in lifetimes of people listening to this regional nuclear wars. It cannot feed the planet. It has failed now totally as a job machine on a net planetary basis. Uh, Several billion people are now just simply access to the demands of capital accumulation on a global uh, scale, the majority of working classes in Latin American cities and in Africa toil in the informal economy, which is a kind of synonym for uh, uh, structural unemployment. And capitalism cannot decarbonize the planet or bring about the adaptations to protect the poorest people who are the least responsible for carbon emissions from uh, the floods and droughts and famine uh, that follow. I mean, we act not because we have hope, but because uh, we're humans. And the essential slogan, I think, has to be that we must always advocate uh, the necessary, not the possible. We must embrace the kind of millenarian spirit uh, that Roberta is talking about, because this is a decisive battle for human survival uh, that's begun. And uh, I think that there is unparalleled fighting spirit amongst the current generation of young people, particularly of my younger children who are just still in their senior year in high school. And I've seen amongst them and their friends a kind of resolution and courage, and also refusal to accept realistic uh, 
politics because they understand very deeply that it has to be profound change has to occur, uh, not just uh, uh, reforms or uh, promises of moderation and civility from democratic uh, uh, candidates. In other words, they've taken measure of their future and they know the task in hand. But it does raise the question that Roberto also alluded to, which is the necessity for revolutionary organization, maybe not in the failed forms that some of us tried in the 60s or 70s, but there has to be a community of organizers, okay, drawn together in solidarity and conserving and studying and learning from uh, struggles of the present to develop new tactics and strategy, and it has to be internationalist. That's absolutely uh, uh, essentialist. Uh, if it's not internationalist, we'll end up practicing our own version of America firstism. Roberto? I have just made the strategic blunder of following Mike Davis in talking about revolution and politics in the future. I have screwed, but let me try nonetheless. Um, I take to heart everything Mike is saying, and uh, I will add just first that I wrote this book because I was very clear that we are not going to liberal or progressive our way out of the crises, the intersecting crises we face. They're too massive and astonishing to confront with a politic of death and capitalism. It's just not going to happen. I don't even think Bernie Sanders' political imaginary completely embraced the kind of things that we need, but it was a start. It hinted at things that we need, and we have to rescue that. I'm here in California, and I could give a flying rolling donut about Kamala Harris's ethnic background and whether or not, and, and how many, I do care about how many kids and families she jailed, how many cops she failed to put in jail. You know, and I don't even, I'm not even going to mention Joe Biden because, you know, I've seen enough zombie movies. So, um, so, so I think, you know, we're not going to liberal progressive our way out of this. And instead we have to, again, pursue militant acts of political imagination right now. I'm a person that believes that with all my heart. I introduce people to the revolutionary sensibility that I experienced, not through the bombs and guns thing, but through a love story. Because, you know, people think, oh, you're, you're, you guys are hardcore. But actually, there was so much gorgeous poetry in Latin America and El Salvador, Roque Dalton, and my friend here in California, Martibón Galindo, and others have, like, produced a lot of beautiful work. And it's not known, but it should be known. We have to unforget the beauty. We have to, you know, remember that revolution doesn't, it, all, it needs dancing, but it also needs love. Um, more concretely, I think, and, and I'll close with this, is that I, I, I have friends, some of whom I hint at in the book, who were trained by some of the greatest strategists, not just in the modern era, but in world history. These five foot two generals who defeated some of the most powerful empires of their time, the Vietnamese. And my friends were trained by them. And, you know, I, you know, they'd go and I'd, I'd ask them later on, much later, I'd say, hey, man, what is the Jedi knowledge? of revolution. So one of my friends, he's very bookish, he says, well, it's that, es un acto espiritual. 
It's a spiritual act or what you would call psychology. So that you need a, a, an animus that allows you to stay positive in some ways, not just positive like feel good, but positive in struggle. Positive to take on intrepid risks in the name of, like Mike is saying, literally saving the planet from ourselves. So with that, I, I, I wanted Mike Davis to be my uh, uh, interlocutor here because Mike is a beautiful writer in addition to being a beautiful human being that's committed for so long. And I think that I, I, I try to write as beautifully as I could. I don't know if I succeed. You will be the judge and criticize the shit out of me if you want. Um, I encourage it. But really, I wrote it as an incitement for us to become poet warriors. We need to become poet warriors. You can't just be progressive and left and, and, and unhealthy. you got to be clear in, about the spiritual battle that's taking place. Just look at the Trump forces. They're high. I used to be a right-wing evangelical Christian. I can tell you the propaganda and the animus of those troops is very high. We're not going to have the, we're not going to get the animus we need, even with Bernie Sanders. We need something greater. So with that, I just introduce my experience of that greater good, which was a Salvadoran experience. And uh, with love and affection for, for Dana, for Mike, for Anthony and Haymarket and, and, and Upended Books, thank you very much for, for joining me on this launch of my book. Thank love you. you. Thank you both so much. It has been an honor to be in conversation with you. And please, everyone, buy Roberta's book. It, it will move you. It will inspire you. It will give you some of that radical animus that we all so desperately need. So have a good night. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.